The story of life usually begins at birth, but here we are going to start at the end. Well, actually, after the end. What do we mean? We want to start by looking at historical figures' legacies. How does society remember a person? And how does that memory shape our understanding of the past, and perhaps, more importantly, the present? I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And this is The Stories We Tell, a podcast that analyzes historical figures and how the stories we have told about them shape the larger histories about the creation of nations, the identity of their citizens, and so much more. Ultimately, history is a collection of interpretations made by historians. Here, we will look at how those interpretations created memory, one legacy at a time. Hello, everyone. This is Jamie popping in before the episode to say a couple of things. First, I want to wish you all happy holidays and thank you so much for checking out the first season of The Stories We Tell. If you haven't already subscribed or followed the show, I would ask that you please do so so that you do not miss out on the launch of our second season, planned for late spring, or any of our spontaneous bonus episodes. And speaking of bonus episodes, Justina and I would like to know if you have any lingering questions about the stories we have told. Was there an aspect of someone's life you would like to know more about? Or do you perhaps have a question about something we didn't mention? Please let us know by Instagram. Our handle is at stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast. Or please feel free to drop us a line at storieswetellpod at gmail.com. And thank you again so much for listening. Now, on with the story. Hello, Justina. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> How are you? That, that felt very uh, podcasty voice. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm trying. This is a podcast after all, right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it is true. So I'm going to open today with a quote And I have sighed when obliged to confess that either nature has made a great difference between man and man, or that the civilization which has hitherto taken place in the world has been very partial. I have turned over various books written on the subject of education and patiently observed the conduct of parents and the management of schools. But what has been the result? A profound conviction that the The neglected education of my fellow creatures is the grand source of the misery I deplore. One cause of this barren blooming I attribute to a false system of education, gathered from the books written on the subject by men who, considering females rather as women than human creatures, have been more anxious to make them alluring mistresses than affectionate wives and rational mothers. It was so good. I mean, it's such a, it's, it's such a feminist text. Do you think everyone knows who we're talking about or what this text is? I don't know. Do you think? I think sadly, no. And I'll be, I think it's because admittedly, I do know who this text is. Mm -hmm. But I think that this person whom we speak of (laughs) is Sometimes really left out of early feminist narratives, sadly, shockingly. Well, I mean, to be fair, do a lot of people know about early feminist narratives? (laughs) It's a great point. Take your specialist hat off for a moment. I know. That's a great point. Uh, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I think well, not. I mean, so maybe the point that she makes about education, while we've come a long way since the 18th century, it's probably education, right? That people don't know. And so we won't keep keep people in suspense any longer. This is Mary Wollstonecraft. Yay. And it's from the introduction of Vindication of the Rights of Woman. It's so good. It's so good. I'm so excited we're going to talk about her today. She is fascinating and definitely needs to be included in narratives about early feminist texts. But also, I mean, I, even for people who don't 
think about early feminist sex <laughs> She's fascinating. And and her lineage is fascinating, which I hope yeah. to talk about just a little bit. Um, I think the thing that strikes me so much about uh, vindication of rights of woman is her use of human. So trying to, rather than focusing on men and women, trying to find this commonality in the fact that we're human creatures mm-hmm. and because we have this thing in common. Um, and so she can get pretty snarky uh, at points because she says uh, later on, my own sex, I hope will excuse me if I treat them like rational creatures instead of <laughs> flattering their fascinating graces and viewing them as if they were in a state of perpetual childhood, unable to stand alone. Oh, it's so good. It's powerful, isn't it? It's so good. Also, I think your comment about human is really interesting because, I mean, this is so long before we get the ideas around human rights that are really kind of only, you know, formulated on a global scale post-World War II, right? I mean, they're definitely talking about it earlier. Well, I mean, then we think about like the Enlightenment and things, but... Yeah, I mean, and that's what what she's coming out of, right? And so if we think about the latter part of the 18th century and we think about the Declaration of Independence, um, if we think about... The ideals document. <laughs> yes. The rhetoric of the, the French Revolution, right? Definitely, so that's very yes. much the era in which she's kind of moving. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of rhetoric about human, human rights. rights endowed. We all have but these I mean, rights when, given to us when, by the creator. Correct. But it was so highly specific who was included right. in when that they said, category. When then. they said man, They didn't mean it in the general term. No, they did not. No, they did not. But, I mean, that was, you know, some could argue that that in and of itself was kind of radical, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. In an age of absolutist monarchy. But anyway, that's a subject for a different day. Listen, (laughs) Mary Wollstonecraft was born in 1759 in in London in a not-so-great area. So just setting the stage. All right. Her dad, her dad was a silk weaver, um, who actually came into some money and thought, this is fantastic. I'm going to get out of dirty London. I'm going to move to the country and become a country gentleman. Okay. But he was not very good with money. He could not manage money very well. He was also an alcoholic. Okay. And his alcoholism made him violent at times. Um, it's actually pretty sad. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft slept outside her mother's bedroom to protect her mother or thinking that she was protecting her mother and her her siblings. But early on, within this kind of disruptive home life, she appears to kind of hone in on the differences between her education and that of her brothers. So her brothers are going to school, you know, they're learning classics, politics, rhetoric, these different things. And she's learning needlework, the piano, maybe a bit of French And this bothers her. Her father ultimately fails in his agricultural endeavors, and they move back to London. And this is where she meets the best friend of her life, the very unfortunately named Fanny Blood. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's true. And so for those of us on this side of the Atlantic, that's unfortunate because Fanny is another name for bottom. Yeah. However, if you're on the British side of the Atlantic, Fanny is the name for the ladies front bottom. <laughs> I mean, we are adults. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a reproductive health historian. You can say it. I know, but I'm not a reproductive health historian. And I said front bottom. Oy vey. So oh, okay. over here, it's the back bottom. Over there, so, it's the front bottom. Either way, its connection also with blood is not... Well, that is very reproductive healthy. Well, if you're talking about the front bottom, yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe not the back bottom. Oy vey. <laughs> Unless you're... Yes. 
suffering it does from sound the consequences like a cycle. of reproductive reproduction. I don't know. It is interesting, though. I mean, her name is very much coinciding with a menstrual cycle. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know when people began using the term, to be fair, right? Fanny. I don't know when people began using the term fanny to uh-huh. refer to various sides of a bottom. Yeah. Um, so it may be entirely, I mean, it's actually it's entirely probable name. that, that her name wasn't funny in the 18th century. Yeah. Sorry, Fanny. Um, the, but isn't it a name? Is it a, is it a British name? This is going to really show no. my, it's not a tri- to, to, to No. Why okay. would they do that? Fair enough. Okay. All right. <laughs> sorry. It's fine. This has gone down a weird rabbit hole. I'm not going to lie. Well, I can't, I mean, like, what Actually, I was just no, gonna, normal, I was just I gonna mean, say what her name was and I wasn't gonna comment on it at all. Well, we can always just keep going. Anyway. All right. all right. So, best friend of her life, Fanny Blood. And okay. she really, so Mary Wollstonecraft has a pattern of feeling an intense responsibility toward people. I mean, if you think about the fact that she slept outside her mother's bedroom uh, to try to kind of in moments of anger that her father exhibited act as a protector for her mother, she forms these really intense relationships and she is very committed to people, but she also kind of expects a lot from them. So she, once she meets and befriends Fanny Blood, she really, all of those kind of protective, dedicated, intense feelings are directed at Fanny. And in many ways, they were kindred spirits. I think Fanny provided Mary with a sort of relationship and caring that she didn't necessarily feel within her own family because she had, you know, the alcoholic father that wasn't very loving and affectionate. But also, while she felt this intense you know, relationship toward her mother, as you would make sense. She believed that her mother really kind of favored her brothers mm-hmm. more than her. And perhaps this, you know, is kind of impacting the way that she'll go on to see the world. I, I don't know. So anyway, they're kindred spirits. They are a tremendous support system um, to each other. But Mary's uh, mother's health begins to decline. Um, and so she moves in with her mother to take care of her. And she will then go on to live with her sister, Eliza. She had really kind of hoped that, you know, once she kind of got family situations under control, that she and Fanny could kind of have this life together, you know, living together, two strong, independent women, you know, tackling the world. But Fanny gets engaged. That's like a... It sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> right? Yeah. Laverne and Shirley of the yes. 18th century. But Fanny gets engaged. Oh. Oh, see, that would be a good spin for the, the sitcom, actually. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to cast my mind. It's been such a long time since I've seen Laverne and Shirley. Oh, Laverne and Shirley was so good. Laverne always had that sweater with the L on it. Yes, it's such signature. a good style. Like, such a signature. signature. They drank Pepsi with milk. Pepsi. You Pepsi. remember Squiggy? Yes, oh, I yeah, remember I Squiggy. Georgian, That's course. right. Coca-Cola all day long. <laughs> Coca-Cola. Yeah, it's such a good show. It's such a good show. I don't know how anyway. that would have changed the dynamic, though, if one of them had gotten engaged. Got engaged, yeah. But also I was thinking, like, even, like, Mary Tyler Moore-esque, too. You know, like, you know, career ladies, like, 17th century, or, I'm sorry, 18th century feminist take London. I don't know. It does sound fun. I don't know. I mean, and I think, so, I'm not as familiar with, sitcoms at the time but i do remember you know laverne and hang 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 with me laverne and shirley was you know not like a lot of other sitcoms that focused on the family the family unit right totally yeah but i don't know i was going to try to make a point about how maybe like that was an example of being outside the norm in the 20th century so how ex exceptionally outside the norm it would have been in the 18th century to stay single working at the bot 
bottling factory. Weren't they in Milwaukee or something? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think the idea that I didn't know this about Mary Wollstonecraft, but that's a fascinating idea that she had this plan to want to live with a, like a friend and be in this, like, it just feels very 20th century. So, uh, I mean, Laver- uh, even at the time of Laverne and Shirley, I think, you know, a 27 year old would have been a spinster. So. Yes. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I mean, maybe that's even generous, maybe a 25 year old. So, yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's interesting. She had this mindset too, that she could. I don't know, thinking outside of the box in ways that people couldn't have even imagined. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was entirely realistic. I mean, even if Fanny hadn't gotten engaged. But anyway, Wollstonecraft's beliefs in education led her to start up a school. Um, She had always engaged in intellectual pursuits, um, but she really wanted to, you know, foster this, create an environment to foster this for herself and also create an environment for real education for children. Fanny came to work at the school, which was nice. And this was a really lovely and happy period for Mary Wollstonecraft. Fanny will wind up moving to Portugal. So they're at the school together. Things are great. Things are fun. But Fanny does get engaged. She moves to Portugal with her husband. And Fanny had never had great health. Okay. And when she she moves to Portugal, she gets pregnant. And it was a very difficult time for her health-wise. So kind of true to form, Mary Wollstonecraft drops everything that she's doing. Oh, wow. Runs to Portugal to basically nurse Fanny. It's really sad. Fanny and the baby die. Oh, my God. No, this is so interesting. And I know you probably are going to talk about more about this later, but I have read I read a great little article about pregnancy around Mary Wollstonecraft's life as an example, but the ideas around pregnancy are so different during this time period because so many people died in childbirth, right? And so mm-hmm. to have seen that close up with someone so close to you, oh, oh my gosh. It's so interesting too that she dropped, I mean, everything and I mean, Portugal. It's not like, oh, she moved across town in London. That's fascinating. That's what I'm saying about a character trait of hers. She does develop these really intense relationships. And I think it also, and we'll see this a little bit later too, she has such an extreme sense, I think, of loyalty and fidelity. And so it probably wasn't even a, a question for her. You know, Fanny needed her. And so that was what she was going to do. After this incident, you know, she let the school go to go be with Fanny. So she needed to find employment for herself. So she actually goes to Ireland to be a governess. She loved the children. Um, The children loved her, but she did not get along with the mother at at all. They fought with each other, sometimes publicly. Oh, yes, it was it was uh, a very it was not an agreeable situation for Mary Wollstonecraft. She did really love the children. And I think the children were probably better for having her. So it was a very privileged family. And Wollstonecraft actually took the children out to visit poor people to actually show them their privilege, which is rather revolutionary, you know, considering, considering the time. I mean, these young children in most other situations would have been kind of kept in a bubble, you know? Absolutely. It's hugely revolutionary. I mean, people said it was revolutionary when Eleanor Roosevelt took, you know, the president FDR to go see you know, how poor people experience life. And that was, you know, the 19, you know, early 1900s. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, that's, and especially with children that she would, I, I, she had, she just didn't think like people thought back then. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. And so I think the reason, one of the reasons why she really didn't get along with the mother is because the mother was everything that Mary Wollstonecraft despised. And the mother 
according to Wilson Craft, cared way too much about her appearance. She was just very interested in sort of frivolous things. You know, she wasn't like a woman of the mind, you know, and I think while Wilson Craft probably didn't blame her necessarily, it still drove her crazy. And I think the two of them butted heads because Wilson Craft was thinking, here, I have this opportunity to make sure that this woman's daughters don't wind up like her. And this woman's probably wanting to know why her children aren't, why their needlework is so poor. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's so interesting that, uh, yeah, you could, it makes a lot of sense why they would have a contentious relationship if that was like, if that was the case. Yeah. So I think Wilson Craft realize, recognizes, realizes, admits, and you can see that from the introductory piece that I read that men created the ideal, but it drove her crazy when women went along with it. It's so, I mean, even that is so revelatory. I mean, she's just thinking ahead, right? She understanding like concepts around constructions of gender and how those constructions keep, you know, men and white men in power and all of those. I mean, it's just, yeah. And of course, she's annoyed by the woman who is totally playing into. Yes. And as she's, you know, creating or trying to make changes, even within just, you know, one individual or a couple individuals with the children. No doubt. So her career as a governess fails miserably. So she has to find something else to do. And that's when Wollstonecraft becomes a writer. Yay. Thank goodness. Yes. Um, she's one of the first writers to be kept on a retainer with regular spots. And she was wildly popular, but she published just with her initials. I was going to ask, is it a pseudonym? Yeah. Okay. Just so her, were people just her initials. If, were people unaware of her gender then? Correct. So right. no one knew that it was a woman writing the book reviews, novels, and other things that they were, that they were reading her. <laughs> Her publisher, because she was so successful, her publisher really encouraged her to try to write a children's book. Oh, no, it didn't go well. (laughs) No, it was way too dark to be a, a children's story. So, all right. The moral of the story was supposed to be that the poor and destitute deserve the sympathy of society. Again, she had taken those children in Ireland to to make them acknowledge the privilege that they had in their lives. Consistent. So a similar sort of goal that she wanted to highlight in this book, because then, you know, all the children, theoretically, you know, could have access to this lesson. The title of the book is Crazy Robin. Okay. I won't go into a lot of detail, but basically Crazy Robin loses all his money. His family dies. Someone shoots his dog. And then, and then he carries the corpse around with him. Oh no. It's the crazy part. He carries the dog's corpse? Yes. Oh, that's heartbreaking. It's very sad. It's also disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Is this illustrated? Because that's where my brain is. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I mean, I immediately, when you say children books, I try to picture it in my head. I'm just like, whoa. I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> this was not a success. And afterward, her publisher did not encourage her to write any more children's books. This was not this was not her special skill. She was a woman of many skills, many talents, children's author, not one of them. And that's fine. We can't all be good at all things, you know? No, and I also think, I mean, I do think the the moral that she was trying to get across is excellent. So, sure. Yeah. When the French Revolution breaks out, she's okay. a huge fan. Huge fan. I mean, gives you your you're shocked. You're very <laughs> shocked. Hang on. I'll give you a moment to pick yourself up off the floor. Okay, I'm up again. Oh, you good? All right. All right. She publishes Vindication of the Rights of Men. That comes out in 1790, and it's initially incredibly popular. According to the authoritative source Wikipedia, it sold out in three weeks. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Amazing. Yes. And that's all when her name isn't on it. Oh, of course. Okay. Okay. Then, then when she puts her name on it, no one buys it anymore. Oh my gosh. Seriously? Yes, because it's a lady. Oh my God. That is so crazy. Ugh, that's so disappointing. So why write Vindication? In the first place, Vindication of Rights of Men. Sorry. She is writing this in response to Edmund Burke. So Edmund Burke is a British politician that argued in favor of monarchy. When I said that it was initially popular, when people find out that it was written by a woman, they begin to claim that it makes no sense, that it's full of emotion, Just like a woman to become hysterical over a man's cold, hard logic and reason. Am I right? Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, things. some things never change, apparently. Well, I mean, I think most people... If you, if you read both, both of them today, if you read Burke's piece and then you read, you read Vindication of Rights of Men, you would find that Mary Wollstonecraft's is far more structured to the point, whereas Burke's is very kind of rambling and, and all over the place. But she, in, in Vindication, she accuses Burke of being overly emotional. And I have, I have some quotes here. They're not, I'll warn everybody. They're not as long as the introduction. So don't, don't worry. Don't despair. The birthright of man to give you, sir, a short definition of this disputed right is such a degree of liberty, civil and religious, as is compatible with the liberty of every other individual with whom he is united in a social compact and the continued existence of that compact. It is necessary emphatically to repeat that there are rights which men inherit at their birth as rational creatures who were raised above the brute creation by their improvable faculties, and that in receiving these, not from their forefathers, but from God, prescription can never undermine natural rights. It's so good. And it's so revolutionary at the time. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that someone had rights just because they were born was massive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she follows Vindication of Rights of Men with Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which I wrote a rather lengthy bit from earlier. And the main argument for vindication of rights of women was for women's education. And that in and of itself was, you know, cutting edge as most everything to do with her. But even beyond that, she argues for co-ed education. Oh, shock. I know. It's an audio medium, so nobody saw my face. While vindication of the rights of men was probably unjustly criticized because of Wollstonecraft's sex, vindication of the rights of woman was written in a hurry and definitely was an emotion-filled text. Rights of Men comes out 1790, Rights of Woman 1792. All of this was inspired by the French Revolution, Mm -hmm. right? So... In order to see things for herself, Wollstonecraft goes to Paris. Once there, (laughs) yes, once there, she is confronted with the violence of the revolution that she had so passionately spoken in favor of. So perhaps this is another instance of, I don't want to call her idealistic because I think that kind of plays into some of this tropes about her as being like, you know, overly emotional and this, that, and whatever. And I, and I don't believe that, but I do think, I d- but I don't know what other sort of words I don't, I, use. Were, I mean, like not, okay, let me say it this way. I think she was idealistic, not in a whimsical sort of yes. way, but she had strong beliefs about what she thought needed to be done in order to improve things. And I think that she also had hope and belief that they could become possible, yeah. which is idealistic. I yeah, it is. And, the, yeah. and you almost have those things have to kind of go together because what, you know, how can you speak? How can you passionately believe in something and speak in favor of it if at the same time you feel that it can never be a reality? You know, I completely agree. And I think because when you were saying that, I I was thinking about the hope component. Right. And 
I was also thinking, you know, we keep saying how she is so, you know, revolutionary for her time in terms of the things that she believes. And she believes wholeheartedly, right? But I imagine she's thinking, well, I'm not the only one who must think, feel these things or must think these things. And so when a revolution, you know, seems to be representative of those ideals that she believes in, of course she feels like, oh, this is this is it. Other people are thinking this the time is you know now you know this is happening right and so i mean i think i made a joke at the beginning about the guillotine because i i you know so much of when we think of the french revolution we do think about their tremendous violence Mm -hmm. but it's interesting (laughs) actually because of course in retrospect you know as a historian we we think of those things right or at least i do i think of i always think of the guillotine when i think of everybody always thinks of the guillotine but it's it's incredible Incredible to realize, I love this stuff about history, that someone would, you know, at the time, maybe that wasn't as well known across Europe, right? And then she gets there and she's like, oh my God, what is happening here? That's such, I mm-hmm. mean, it just shows the, you know, way news spread, what news was being um, discussed, what maybe wasn't being put out there. <laughs> like, it's, that's a fascinating component of history well, too. And she's not... While she's idealistic, she's not blinded. I mean, it's not become, it doesn't become a rose colored glasses situation for her. She is, she is a realist, you know, in terms of accepting reality for what it is in that moment, because she is honest in her observations about the, the new regime. I mean, like to paraphrase the who. Yeah. <laughs> concludes that the new boss is the same as the old boss. Yeah. It's, Basically, like, it's kind of one tyrant for another sort of tyrannical situation. She actually sees Louis the 16th led to his trial. Oh, wow. And becomes emotional. She was surprised by what her reaction was. She comments on his, his dignity, the way that he held himself in the, in the face of all of, all of this. And I think maybe one of the other things too, that might strike some of us is that because we spent so much time talking about how revolutionary she was, cutting edge, forward thinking. She was too moderate for revolutionary France. (laughs) That's actually excellent. I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. She was she was not that extreme, I guess. Yeah. Well, okay. so it's it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So she was too moderate in terms of being horrified by the violence of the new regime. Yes. She was far too kind of extremist, progressive, left-wing, whatever you want to say, because of her beliefs in the rights of women. Yeah. So the fraternity and brotherhood and all of those things, the rhetoric of the French Revolution, weren't meant to apply to to women. Yeah. um, She's also very unsafe because she's British. Well, I was thinking of Thomas Paine. (laughs) Well, so she's really unsafe in Paris at this time. Yeah. Because because she's British and they actually uh, have her under surveillance. Oh, but they don't they don't throw her into prison or anything at this point. No, but many moderate people are being imprisoned and some are being executed. Okay. Yeah. So she's, Um, she is, which I mean, also even that it's so interesting that she would choose to go there, but it really does show how she did not understand how violent it was. If she was like, Oh, I'm going to go to the center of this revolution. I think she wanted to see for herself. I appreciate it. Also during this time, she meets a man called Gilbert Imlay. He like every good red blooded 18th century American was a land speculator. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, that was a very yeah. well-delivered line. Yeah. Insert, <laughs> insert sarcasm. <laughs> Dripping sarcasm. That um, was excellent. Excellent delivery on that. Thank you. Wilson Craft is in her mid-30s at this time. And okay. they fall Still in- so young. I know. Still so young. Quite a lot in. They fall in love with each other. She definitely falls in love with him. Will let the listeners decide how 
true his love was. But he registers her as his wife. And he, so they never officially marry. But in terms of paperwork and stuff, he registers her as his wife. And she then begins to call herself uh, Mary Emley or Mrs. Emley. And one of the reasons why they did this, though, was for her protection. Because the French didn't suspe- suspect him because he was an American. She, you know, because of a lot of British opinion about the French Revolution and things like that, that's why she was not not safe. Anyway, so in 1794, they're not actually married, like I said, but they are living together. She, like I said, she does definitely fall in love with him. She loses her virginity to him. Wow. That's um, interesting that we even know that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. As we know from the previous examples that we've discussed, she can be very serious and intense in her relationships. And this situation with Emily was no different. I want to say too, you know, I just said she's so young considering all the things she's done in her life. But for this time period to have been that old, not married, not sexually active, right? In the hopes of having children, extremely old. I mean, she would have been seen as extremely old in that regard. Yeah. Spinster, like you said before. Yeah, absolutely. So she's all in. He keeps disappearing for work. Oh. I say disappearing because it is never entirely clear what sort of business is taking him away and what sort of things he's getting up to while he's gone, which is surprising, right? Because land speculators, always the most upright, honest, faithful people, <laughs> just real salt of the earth, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just makes you, it just makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like, what was she thinking? I don't anyway. Know. Anyway, anyway. I mean, this goes with our whole sitcom. I mean, her life is fairly dramatic in the ways that would make for... Anyway, okay, moving on, moving on. So she writes uh, another work, A Historical and Moral View of the French Revolution. Um, It's an optimistic and rationalist account of the French Revolution based on her own experiences. It was intended to defend the revolution against critics like Burke. Um, she explained that the violent excesses of the revolution were an overreaction caused by the degraded character of the French people, which was the result of the despotism of the old regime. So it's kind of, um, it's a similar sort of logic is that that she makes in Vindication of Rights of Woman. You know, okay, the these people aren't responsible for the system and the structure that was created around them, right? Yes, they're behaving poorly, but it's in response to abuses of an absolute monarchy. Just like she said, women, yes, women are stupid, but that's because of the oppression of of men. So it's similar. It's nuanced. But it's a similar sort of pattern of logic. She has a baby with Emily and she names the little girl Fanny after her friend. Mm-hmm. Wow, that really does show the, I mean, that's a great way to understand the bond. Yeah. All right. So I'm about to wade into some dark material here. So I just kind of want to let every know, everybody know that it's about to get, it's about to get heavy and we're going to okay. talk about some um, issues of, of mental illness and depression. So I just like, if people want to turn away or whatever, they feel free to do so. So Wollstonecraft or Emily, as she's going by at the time, is going to suffer from postpartum depression. This is compounded by the fact that Emily is not around. So she's experiencing isolation because he's not around. But she can't really go out because, like we've said, she's not safe. Um, it's an incredibly violent sort of atmosphere out there. And then on top of all of that, it was a really bad winter um, in Paris that year. And so she doesn't have – Emily's not there. She doesn't have any family. So she's just – you know, pretty much all alone um, with this, with the baby. She returns to London in 1795, trying to track Emily down. And oh he my cont- God. And he continues to kind of push her away. She really begins to despair and overdoses on laudanum. Oh my God. She, it appears that she sent a letter to Emily, which indicated to him that she was a 
about to do something terrible and he was able to get to her in time and save her life. So I'm not exactly sure how that timing could have worked out and where she was in relation to where he was. I have no explanation for that whatsoever, but thankfully he got there in time and was able to intervene. So she recovers from this and she's still wanting to work it out. She's still wanting to work it out. And he suggests that maybe the best way for her to feel better is to go to Sweden and Norway with Fanny, their baby, on his behalf to track down some money that is owed him. Okay. I'm just going to let that sink in. I mean, again, such a land speculator, this Gilbert Imlay. I mean, just such a land speculator. Ay, ay, ay. So... She fails in her effort to track down this money. And in the process, Imlay breaks up with her via letter while she's gone. Oh, 17th century text breakup. Yes. <laughs> or 18th century sex yes. breakup. 18th century. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. Oy. Okay. Um, it's interesting too. the, I mean, I think your, th- your kind of your argument about loyalty really is showing again, yet again with this, this relationship. Yeah. She, she gets, when she gets back to England, um, there's a, another unsuccessful suicide attempt. Okay. In 1796, letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark come out. This is actually the, while I had read bits and pieces of both of the vindications, Uh this piece is actually the first of Wollstonecraft's writing that I read all the way through. So this was kind of my big introduction to her. So this is a, a blend of literary genres. So it's kind of part travel narrative, but not in the sense of today I went here and these are the things that I did and these are the things that I ate and, but it's Uh a very, it's a very inward looking and, and reflective work. You can see that she's still very concerned with issues of society, with the individual, the individual's place in society, women's education. It's not so the tone is different than her previous works. And it's not that it's it's not that it's overly emotional. Again, I want to be very careful here about the sorts of words that I'm using because I don't want to use the sorts of words that 18th century and later critics use to discount her work because of stereotypes associated and applied to women. So I want to be careful here and not to say that it's an emotional work, but it doesn't rely on logic and reason the way that the previous work did, the works did. It's not irrational, but she does talk about her feelings and it, and it really, it really captures her sadness. Oh, that's so interesting. I think it seems like at an earlier point in her life, in her writing, she was trying really hard to push against stereotypes associated with women, right? Like the emotional, right? She's, you know, making concerted efforts to create arguments that are based on fact and reason and probably, you know, uh, employing a style of writing that would be more associated with a man or right. But then it seems like at this point, she's just deciding, I'm just going to write. Well, and I think she's at a different place. You know, she's writing to kind of process everything. Whereas, you know, the purpose of the other works were very different. Yeah. I also Um, think your comments about like worrisomes about not wanting to utilize the arguments associated with her created to kind of uh, challenge her works or whatever by later uh, men. But I think, again, it kind of goes along with even her arguments, right? Those are constructions that were made to make women look weak or whatever. But I'm, I mean, it doesn't make her weak necessarily to write down her emotional, you know, reflection. Anyway, I just no, think it's super interesting. But I, I, it's I do be- appreciate it. It's beautifully written. You know, yeah. I mean, and so I, you know, it's not irrational. It's not just like right. a, a stream of, I'm feeling this and this and this is is beautiful. And I, like I said, you know, it was one of the the first texts of hers that I read all the way through and had a profound impact on me. I I don't know. I walked away from it having such respect for her as a, as a human and and an admiration really. Mm -hmm. And so in this sentiment, I was not alone. One of her contemporaries, William Godwin wrote, quote, 
if ever there was a book calculated to make a man fall in love with its author, this appears to me to be the book. Wow. I should also add real quickly that it was the last book published in her lifetime. Oh, wow. Okay. So back to Godwin. All right. Because now he becomes a very important character in Mary Wollstonecraft's story. They had met before at a dinner in honor of Thomas Paine, and that meeting did not go well. She was not impressed with him. And poor Godwin, not a looker. Oh. Yeah. And he thought she talked too much. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mutual insults. Yes. (laughs) But when they counter each other again, their similar worldviews draw them together. Their story's actually really, really sweet. They fall for each other through writing letters. Mm -hmm. Which seems Um, so perfect for them, especially. (laughs) And it's really their nonconformist attitudes that solidify their connection. I think initially, I mean, I don't know. This is just my, my, you know, worthless opinion. I think it must be an intellectual attraction that then turns into something more. Godwin is a, you know, philosopher, intellectual. Mary Wollstonecraft gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. And Godwin and Wollstonecraft are faced with a really difficult decision. Okay. So both of them are opposed to marriage. Okay. For feminist reasons. Okay. Right. Because yeah. marriage is a way of making a woman property. Yes. Essentially. Yes. So an impressive, yeah, oppressive structure, power structure. Um, everyone assumes that Wollstonecraft was actually married to Emily, right? They, they right. went through that paperwork. Um, she kept up the appearances because she didn't want Fanny to have to carry the burden of being illegitimate. Okay. But then, of course, along the same lines, if Wollstonecraft doesn't become Mrs. Godwin, then her second child would be illegitimate. Right. Also, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I also think they're probably in love and (laughs) wanted to get married. (laughs) Because... As hopefully everything that we've talked about so far really demonstrates, even though she was very radical in terms of some thought processes, she does appear to have kind of a very sort of traditional or old fashioned, old fashioned heart. So very radical mind, very traditional heart. Well, and I also think it goes with your concepts or your kind of argument around loyalty, like wanting to be connected to the people that she feels close to is Mm -hmm. very clear throughout her her lifespan. And so it would make sense that she would also, from a personal perspective, want that connection. Yeah. And I think that this is one of the reasons why her memory is so complicated. But I'll talk about that in my conclusion. But they get married. um, But they also, I love this about them. They also don't become complete hypocrites. (laughs) <laughs> because they maintain separate residences. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all, so all the married people out there are like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're like, wait, you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> but they, they were very happy together. They were so happy together. And, you know, probably apart from when she was running that school with Fanny, this was the happiest time of her life. In 1797, though, Wollstonecraft dies in childbirth. And I know yes. you have some things that you can add about that. The the little bit that I have read about was a couple things. The way that she actually planned for death while in childbirth was something that she was not alone in, that women did this at the time because they understood childbirth to be so dangerous that they also, you know, kind of made arrangements or made plans for that potential. And with, you know, I mean, she knows this on a personal level with the death of Fanny earlier in her life, right? Um, and so I think one of the things that came out of reading that article for me was our contemporary associations with pregnancy, you know, usually are, you know, baby showers and, you know, these like very happy plans being made. And that was not necessarily the case in this movement moment in time. And that a lot of pregnancies also came with tremendous fear. And I think also her 
suffering from postpartum, that would be something that could also be something that's on her mind, right? The fear of, am I going to, of course, postpartum, post, excuse me, postpartum wasn't well known or discussed at this moment. There was a lot of ways of talking about how women were hysteric or whatever um, during these time periods or a bit later, but I'm certain that she even understood maybe some of that correlation, um, but maybe she also had hope that with a different, different partner and someone who seemed much more committed and made her happy <laughs> that that wouldn't be the case. But um, but we know that that also postpartum is not about you having a good partner or not, right? It's about, you know, the chemical problems or hormones and all of those things. Of course, I'm not describing that well. But the other thing is one of the things that associated with her death, right, is the way that um, she was infected, right? Because it was an infection of the birth canal, right? Which is a transition. It's, so something's happening in medicine right now, especially around reproductive medicine, where men, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, male-centric medicine is growing at this point, mm-hmm. right? And so previously we had had reproductive medicine was typically a woman's space, right? So we would have right, midwives and yeah. exactly, right? And so one of the things that's starting to happen is there's kind of a discrediting of that work. Um, and so we're seeing more births being taken, you know, taken care or doc, male doctors taking care of births. But one of the things that's happening is we also at this time, people did not understand the ways that germs were passed around. So they yeah, want there's increased infections. Yes, because they are not even washing their hands, right? They are. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is that a doctor might be dealing with a cadaver and then putting their hands inside of a woman's birthing canal. And so that's essentially what happens to Wollstonecraft, correct? Right? She she has an infection of the birthing canal, which then leads to her death following the birth of her second daughter, correct? Yep. And I think, you know, what a terrible, cruel irony. You know, that the, the, this medical trend of men becoming more involved in natal medicine is the reason she dies. Well, it's fatal for her. Yes, it's shot. I mean, especially the irony is almost too sad to even consider. Yeah, it's 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 horrible. Godwin is incredibly grief stricken, incredibly grief stricken. And kind of as in he's working through his grief, he writes or puts compiles memoirs of the author of a vindication of the rights of woman in 1798, which revealed Wollstonecraft's unorthodox private life. And this is what really destroyed her reputation for generations. I mean, she's not revived until the 1970s. Right. When Um, the feminist movement is starting to look at these texts and things. Yeah. I mean, people were absolutely scandalized by the details of her private life because he laid he laid everything out. The, you know, the issues with mental health, the issue, the relationship with Emily and all the details of that, you know, her thoughts about the sort of relationship that she wanted to have with Fanny and then like a number of other kind of unorthodox. And I'm not trying to suggest that it was a lesbian relationship. Let me be clear, but it was unorthodox. And then there were a number of other sort of unorthodox relationships that she developed with various people at different times. And so. She had already been, you know, a sort of divisive sort of figure because of her very strident views on women's rights. But everybody that had wanted to discredit her and had kind of created reasons to do that before now had so much ammunition, you mm-hmm. know, and I think Godwin was so surprised I was just going to ask. He didn't, he he didn't expect it at all. And I think I'm not Godwin, so I can't say for sure, but that's just how in love with her he was. You know, he knew all of these things about her and he, you know, was incredibly in love with her anyway. And again, he was also very grief stricken. It's so interesting. I mean, as a historian, you're kind of glad we have that information, right? Because it gives us a really great understanding of her life, but I can only imagine how he may have felt in someone who admired 
admired her so greatly to have caused her to have such a, I mean, I mean, it ultimately trashed her reputation, right? It's a really sad story. Yeah. And the family was mad at him and it was just, it was a, it was a bad, bad situation, but I'll talk more about, you know, the memory and legacy of her in the, in the conclusion, but that's the do we want to say who her daughter is? I feel like we have to say who her daughter is. I was giving you a Are you talking about Fanny? We talked about Fanny, Emily. I'm talking about Fanny, the second baby. Are you talking about Mary Godwin? Yes, a.k.a. Mary Shelley. It's so crazy. You know what I was thinking when you were talking the about author the author of Frankenstein? That's it. Oh, so when you were talking about the story that she, uh, Wollstonecraft, wrote about the children's story i just kept thinking like well her daughter writes a crazy i mean like i don't know it's just so fascinating her daughter goes on to be one of the most famous prolific writers it's just it's an incredible connection yeah she might be another good person to make a whole episode about perhaps perhaps well this was so good i really really love learning more about Mary Wollstonecraft and her life is just it's always so amazing people lived such short lives and put so much into it it's incredible makes you wonder <laughs> what am I what have I been doing you know there's a lot of time that's passed since I ate breakfast this morning I am behind I couldn't agree with you more sometimes it really does make you feel like a procrastinator or something when we talk about these these people in the past uninspired Uninspired. (laughs) it's true well that was so so interesting thank you so much what a great episode thank you No doubt some of you have picked up on the fact that I have selected a second person whose story has not been told enough, but the reasons for this case with Mary Wollstonecraft are much different than those with William Apis. For Wollstonecraft, the reasons why have to do with feminist ideals and the rhetoric of the movement. Some of you will remember from the Stanton episode that in the 19th century, the feminist movement or women's suffrage movement at the time was really relying on the respectability of women. Women's roles as mothers, as wives, as the kind of moral beacons of their family. And Mary Wollstonecraft's life, and then certainly her memoirs, ran very counter to that ideal. And so that is why in the 19th century, a number of suffragists and members of what we would call the feminist movement were not keen to kind of highlight her. As we move into the latter part of the 20th century, I think some feminists had a hard time with her perceived weaknesses. For the strand of the movement, that was relying on the message of we don't need a man, you know, we can be strong, independent women. Mary Wollstonecraft didn't fit well into that framework given her relationship with Imlay. And I think overall, one of the things that Mary Wollstonecraft's life highlights for us is that we demand too much from historical figures. At the end of the day, they were just people, not superheroes or supervillains. It is interesting to me the rather two-dimensional expectations we have for people in the past. If someone wrote a fictional character that way, it would be very boring. On the contrary, literature's best characters are those that are written with depth. Characters that have to wrestle with their human desires and reconcile those with responsibilities to their families, their friends, their communities, and society at large. Even good villainous characters are never just simply bad. There is psychological complexity to their motivations. Even so, we don't seem to appreciate this in real live human beings. Mary Wollstonecraft is a good case study in what we lose when we seek to place historical actors on pedestals. She overcame quite a bit in her lifetime, from loss, mental illness, and a number of other things, all while living in a society that sought to keep women seen and not heard. In spite of this, Mary Wollstonecraft educated herself and worked to edify others. Admittedly, 
I am biased. As I said in the episode, letters from Sweden, Norway, and Denmark produced a great deal of admiration. And I would say that was because of how it highlighted her humanity. At the end of the day, it is amazing that mere humans are able to impact the world. And that is such an inspiring reality. It suggests the capacity for greatness or change or whatever that exists in us all. And in contrast, if people in the past were perfect, that doesn't leave much to aspire to. Ultimately, the messiness of history and the complicated nature of people's personalities and their interactions with each other are what makes history worth studying and makes for stories worth telling. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out the recommended reading list on our Instagram account. Our handle is stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast. Please join us next time to examine another legacy, another memory, and explore the stories we tell.